Hey everyone, it's James, and it's been a while. I've been working on some things here and there, and just trying to stay busy through all this mess, as I'm sure everybody else is trying to do the same thing. But one thing that's always keeping me sane is listening to new podcasts that can allow for reflection or escape. And there's one podcast in particular that I have been waiting for so long to be released and I am incredibly excited that it's finally out. The show is called Appearances and it's made by the most talented podcast producer Sharon Mashihi and it centers around a character named Melanie who is trying to navigate her life in her 30s and she's now at this point where she really wants to become a mom but she doesn't have the kinds of support who would have her back and potentially would make this journey easy for her. It's a story about finding yourself and trying to find out who you are when you're being pulled in all sorts of directions. And it just feels so honest and real and just emotionally powerful. Actually, in this first episode that I'm going to be playing for you, there are times where I had to stop the episode because it it was just so emotionally overwhelming and it's the use of sound and the dialogue and the performances that Sharon has captured that just make these moments stay with you and, and resonate I'm going on and on but I just love this show so much and I'm just excited to share it with you and for you to be as equally absorbed with it and emotionally affected with it as I was. So take a listen. This is episode one of Appearances from Radiotopia. The first episode and also the prologue is out. So if you really, really love this show, which I know you will if you loved Moonface, you should go onto Appearances feed and check out the prologue because it's going to give you a lot more context about the entire series going forward. All right, here we go. Okay, one, mom abortion phone call. Two, me and Ponch singing I'm alone, I'm alone. Three, the prologue from the old version. When I'm having a hard time making a decision, when I am overwhelmed with the question, what do I do now? I make a list of all the things I could possibly do, and then I roll the die. I call it Roly Moly. Four, Peeping Tom. Five, the TV scene. Six, Mel's grandfather's funeral. I am currently having a hard time deciding how to start this episode. Okay, number four, Peeping Tom. When I was eight years old, I was always performing for an audience of one, the Peeping Tom, the man who watched me through my bedroom windows. I would dance for this man. I would sing songs for him. I would hope for him to knock on the door one day and say, A, I've been watching you. B, you're a genius. C, you're incredibly beautiful. And D, this kiss. But alas, the peeping Tom, he never did knock on my door. It's not that he didn't exist. He did exist. It was a problem in my neighborhood. Many women had caught him staring. They'd called the police. 
everyone was on high alert. But unlike the women in my town, I, as an eight-year-old girl, was obsessed with the peeping Tom. Everything, Everything I, I did, I was imagining his gaze, whether or not he ever saw any of it. I'll never know. It's funny, all the moisture from your breasts has moved into your sinuses. <laughs> now, 27 years have passed since that era of my life, and I'm 35, and I know a man who likes watching me as much as my peeping Tom. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Go ahead. Open up a little bit. Open up, open up so that I you can get some audio. Because I want to hear the... This man is a close observer of my every utterance. This man loves me in the way I've always wanted to be loved. You smell good. Your tit fits in my hand nicely. My leg fits between your legs nicely. And my feet land on top of your little feet. Your but little... our relationship has problems. We each have our reasons for being reluctant to commit to each other. For his part, Ponch struggles with what he calls my fatal flaw. The first thing that I noticed with you is you could be deeply unkind. And you later explained to me that the currency in the house that you grew up with was meanness and ranking on each other and belittlement and cruelty. My family. I have a mom who sounds like this. Eh, um... Melanie, stop making wrinkles with your forehead. Ah, you need to do Botox. Or maybe that's a little too caricature. She really sounds more like this. Melanie, Mamanjun, how come you don't want to do Botox? It is just a gentle suggestion, something that I think you would benefit from. I love you. And a dad, who sounds like this. Melanie, go to your room. Go to your room. Or maybe that's a little outdated. Maybe these days he sounds more like this. Melanie, I believe you are spending too much money on your taxes. Baba John, stop it with the report report. They don't deserve your money. And I have a brother who sounds like this. Uh, mom, can I have a Diet Coke? Can I have a Diet Coke, mom? Diet Coke? He really does sound like that. But sometimes he sounds like this. Melanie, I know you think you're so different and you're such a black sheep, but I really think that if you just shaved your armpits, it would be better for everyone. I could have married somebody educated. I could have I carry my family with me everywhere I go. You marry somebody else? You should have married them. I don't give a shit about you. I did it as a favor, and I regret it, and I regret the day you brought these stupid children into the world. It's a monstrous thing for any of us to get over the romantic template that gets built into us. You know what? And yours was not good. I get the, f if I remember correctly, you never or almost never saw any physical affection between your parents. So 
in my thumbnail, in my sort of psychotherapeutic thumbnail, I realized, oh, so she grew up, that the currency on how you express love to people is through putting them in their place, through ranking on them, through belittlement, through various sorts of unkindnesses, or keeping them at a distance, or keeping them pigeonholed. Yeah. You know? So I always knew that my family wasn't like the families I saw on TV, but I assumed that that was because we were Iranian, not because we were particularly fucked up. And maybe we're not fucked up. I really don't know. Supposedly, we're a family-oriented family, not like white American families you see where people put themselves before the good of the group. My parents always taught us to put each other above all else. They taught us that the most important thing you could do with your life is to raise a family. And I'm kind of on the same page. I mean, I want a kid. I want a kid more than anything in the world. But for my parents, everything has to happen the right way. You have to marry a nice Iranian Jewish man who can afford a house. You must move to Gretnik with that man and live within a three-mile radius of us. You will be responsible for driving me to and from all backgammon games. Every three months for the rest of our lives, we will get highlights in our hair together at Puran's basement salon after going to the supermarket together. And like me, your hair will get progressively blonder year after year after year until it is negative yellow. And above all, you and your husband must be committed to the community. You must be. You must be. Like your brother. Like your brother. Bobak. Bobak. Oh, so I can grow up and be just like you guys? So happy, so loving, just like our family? So accepting of one another? I'm 35 years old and you know nothing about anything in my life that matters. You know, I have a boyfriend. I have a boyfriend. I have a boyfriend. I have a boyfriend. Fine. I don't have anything. The community. It's them. They're the reason I can't have a boyfriend. The community is very powerful, actually. Because when my parents are around the community, it's all, I love my husband. I love my wife. But when the community is out of earshot, it's... <sighs> Hello? Mom? Melanie. It's so late. Oh my god, it's midnight. I can't sleep. What's wrong? Your father disappeared five days ago. I don't know where he is. Again? Melanie. I am so lonely. <laughs> oh, Mom. Meanwhile, on the other line... Hello? Dad, what the fuck? Where are you? I am in Istanbul. Can you call your freaking wife? I am busy. When are you coming back home? Papa John, I don't know. Maybe three, four weeks. I have a lot of business to take care of. Right. Business. And then there's the fact that at my mother's 50th birthday, we all went around the table saying one nice thing about her. And when we got to my dad, he couldn't think of anything. Not one nice thing. And there's the time that my mother got her wisdom teeth out, and she got an infection, and we had to take her to the ER, and my dad was MIA. And the time I ran into the only Persian divorcee in Great Neck, and she told me how she and my mom are such good friends because 
quote, they're both single. I mean, she has your dad, but you know what I mean. The thing is, he doesn't love her, but he stays with her, and she stays with him, and it's painful to watch. Melanie, you're exaggerating. My brother, he's just happy with everything the way it is. He's unaware that my parents' marriage is unhappy at all, and he aspires to have a marriage that's pretty much exactly like theirs. In fact, he's already engaged and will soon be following perfectly in their footsteps. This is Jamshid. Jamshid is speaking. Jamshid, I am Jamshid. Melanie's dad. We have different definitions of love. To love is to do your duty. Love is a matter of respect. You just need to learn to compartmentalize. When you're alone, be as freaky as you want. But when you're around other people, just blend in, okay? You have to talk to Every your parents person has as their if they are the king and queen. I mean, it's just so easy. They're the king and queen of the family. I don't understand why you would like blatantly not. If you guys could just be quiet once in a while and listen, you'd realize that we're really not so different. I am just like you. My greatest dream in the world is to have a family, to have a kid. Okay, find a husband and then we talk. A husband. A husband. How about it's time for the queen to get a foot rub? I've been on again, off again with Ponch for four years now. I have a push-pull thing. He calls it cruelty, and maybe it is. It could be that I just struggle to make decisions. Okay, uh, even we stay together and have a baby, odd, I walk away. One. One? One's not a number. It could be that he really is not the right partner for me. This is the stuff that you use to, to pigeonhole me and diminish me and cut me down and emasculate me and disenfranchise me. It could be that I know my parents would never ever go for this 55-year-old unemployed artist white man. I don't like artists. I don't like 55-year-old white man. Not saying that you are dating such a man. No, you would never date such a man. Would you? Would you? But whatever it is, I have a push-pull thing. The push-pull thing is sometimes I love him and want to marry him, and other times I hate him and I break up with him. I think there's... Nothing else to say. I think, I think we just have to break up. And after leaving, I feel good for a temporary period until I start to feel really, really bad. And I decide to come back. I never want to leave you again. And then leave and come back. I leave and come back and leave and come back with the same frequency that rich people go to their summer homes in the Hamptons. You know. We don't go every weekend. We go whenever it gets cramped in the city. What does TTBU stand for? Trying to break up. TTBU is a phase of a relationship that can last anywhere between a day and the rest of your life. My fear about me and Ponch is that we are headed toward the latter. You're not my girlfriend. I'm not your boyfriend right now, even though 
we're having almost daily communication, some degree of involvement, if not awareness of each other's life, um, declarations of love, stuff like that. Right. Are you only asking me questions or do I get to ask you questions too? You can ask me questions. Do you think of yourself as a person who is and has been in love with me? Or do you think it's just, or I mean, I won't put any words as to what the converse might be. I have been in love with you. And your position is that you are no longer. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I'm still in, in love with you. Yes, that's correct. I'm, I have been, <laughs> yes, I've been in love with you. Yes, I'm still in love with you. Yes, I did at one time want to be in a relationship with you and even at one time wanted to marry you. I no longer want to be in a relationship with you. I no longer want to marry you. And I, I wish to move on. You might not believe this, but I am still contemplating having a baby with this man. Well, even though I'm not your girlfriend and you're not my boyfriend, would you consider having kids anyway? I mean, you're still my top candidate. For the record, yeah. my position then and still now, I'd say, is that obviously I'm not the right boyfriend for you and you're not the right girlfriend for me, but I clearly love you, you clearly love me. And what I do know is that if we had a baby, the baby would be smart, the baby would be good looking, and based on both of our personalities, that kid would know how to play and learn. I really, like, I believe, like, in the upper numbers. I know. I know. It'd be a lucky kid in some ways and very unlucky in other ways. Sure. Nobody cares about me. I'm starving. I always get hungry when I see you because I feel a deep emptiness within me. <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Touche. Well, that's what Maybe I'll have a banana. You want a, a banana? A banana sounds good. Yeah. Okay. You want some peanut butter or Nutella for no, it? No, it's perfect. Oh my God, Nutella? Yeah. But what about the fact that you don't have any money? Money never stopped anybody. I mean, it's obviously stopped some people, but um, historically in humankind, money has not been an impediment since, you know, except since mid-century, mid-20th century America. You make a baby, you have a baby, and generally you, your life adjusts in a way to facilitate that baby having a life. But I'm scared that we're just going to end up back together and I'm going to spend my entire life in this like awful game that you and I play. And, and this time it'll be way worse because there's going to be a, another helpless little being involved. Yes, that's true. Well, do you resent me, though? Sure, of course. Well, how can we make it so that you unresent me so that we're not doing this thing with, like, bad vibes that are going to go into the zygote and ruin the kid? 
do you trust me? Are you offended by this? Are you mad at this? Are I'm not, you I'm are not you offended. Are you moved to I'm something about you feel I'm excited? I'm not offended. I'm not moved. I am, I am not completely trusting of you. Deep Thank down, you. you think that you're going to make a better parent than I am. I don't know if I have that, com that specific competition. Um, there might be a couple of things, yes, that I know that you may not know yet. Well, can I tell you a fear that I have about you? Please do. I know it's weird to go into having a child together not totally knowing what we are to each other. It feels, you, it, it feels already precarious to me. If you and I were to get pregnant, we wouldn't know if we were going to be a couple right. during the having of the child. Right, like or more. My guess is, when you're preggers, you're gonna want a lot of TLC and support. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm definitely gonna use <laughs> I'm you for the pregnancy. I'm fairly convinced that yes. you will be very demanding yes, about yes, me yes, showing yes, up. Yes, 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 yes. The pregnancy and want foot massages every day. Yeah, I bet all of, all sure. of that yes, stuff. Yes, but yeah, you talk about trust, um, and we had what my concern is because I have experience with this is afterwards you're gonna go. Wait a second. I can do this myself. Okay, well, Wait I a second. Finished. I can open this up. Well, Wait a second. He's 20 fucking years older than me, and he's fat, and he's gray, and he stinks. And look at me. I'm sorry I hit you, but I, can I tell you my concern? <laughs> can I tell you my concern? Yeah, sure. My concern is that I've seen you with your ex the way as soon as there was conflict between you, as soon as there was a divorce... You turned so hard fucking against her and you made you 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 really have not been kind to her. You have been cold to her. You have not cooperated with her. No offense, no offense, no offense. And I'm <laughs> and I'm concerned that that could happen because we don't even we're not even you were married that time. We're not even married. And, and believe you me, we're not going to get married. And so if we no offense. <laughs> and so if we go into this. And it doesn't work out, the romantic part. So, but but whatever. Okay, let's say you and I have sex. I get pregnant. We're together for the pregnancy. You're supporting me through the pregnancy. We have the baby. Yeah, and as soon as the baby's walking around and out of a pamper, you're going to change your mind. Do I, am I willing to make a baby with you knowing that I'm going to lose this kid same way that I lost my but last I kid. I wouldn't consider it losing. If, if you didn't turn against me just because our romance was over, okay? When our romance ends, if you can vow to not turn against me, then it won't be like you're losing your kid because we could cooperate and just be parents who are seeing other people who don't live together, who are on the same team raising a child. And I worry that you're going to have too much anger at me to do that. You're still open to being the father of my yeah, child. Yeah, I've always been open to that. And my guess is for it to happen, you would have to um, let go of how do we fix me punch. You would have, basically, you would have to go, oh, okay, that guy who has this and doesn't have that. So you think the only thing standing in the way of our long-term love is my not accepting your shortcomings? No, I would have to I would have to do a rethink on you. A rethink on me. Meaning he would have to get over the fact that I am so unkind 
and get over his biggest fear that I would be as unkind to the child as he thinks I am to him. You're, it's hard for you to think about others. But what's the Rant? evidence I think about you? I've always thought about you. What do you mean? Is it possible that you only think about, you think about me in the context of your own narrative? Like, do I care about you, the individual, separate from me? Yeah. Do you think that I, I'm not going to think of my child outside the context of my own narrative? Well, just right there, that sort of righteousness, to me, points that you're a little further away than closer. Of course, that's what you want to well, do. How do you and want me that's to say, what you want to, I don't and that's what you want to work well, towards. That's my righteousness? I assume all prospective parents ask themselves this question. Can I bring a child into this world without passing on my flaws? Can I bring a child into this world without passing on the flaws of my relationship? And if the answer is, your child is doomed to have all your same problems, then is it still worth it? I think, yes, it is worth it. Something inside me says, yes, 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 yes. It is worth it no matter what. Because I know exactly how I feel about motherhood. I am certain about it. And the reason is, I was pregnant once. And when I didn't have the child, when I gave up the pregnancy, it was the biggest heartbreak of my life. I always knew about it, uh, and then at some point I asked for the story. The story. It's a painful story. So painful that when I was trying to make this, I would just come into the office and weep. <laughs> The only way I can tell the story, I realized, is if I tell it as though it wasn't me. It's too hard for me to say, I got pregnant. And so I have to say, she. She got pregnant. It was her, that 26-year-old. She got pregnant with the child of her opiate-addicted boyfriend. Despite the fact that he was constantly high, it was he who had figured it out. Her breasts had been aching, so he looked it up online. Sensitive breasts. And then he remembered that some weeks prior, he had come inside her a little bit and had neglected to tell her that he had done that. She had one week to decide if she would keep the baby or go through with the abortion. If she waited longer than that, it would be too late to legally have an abortion. She made the appointment right away, and then deliberated. The girl had a friend of a friend who was a licensed social worker. The licensed social worker invited the girl to her house to discuss her options. The girl showed up at the licensed social worker's house, and it smelled like salmon. Her husband had cooked it. They had a one-year-old son. It's really, really hard to do it alone, said the licensed social worker. If you don't have buy-in from your partner, I don't think you should do it. 
And in fact, the girl did not have buy-in from her partner, the opiate-addicted boyfriend. Don't do this to me, he had told her. Please, don't do this to me. If you do this, it will ruin my life. I thought the guy was supposed to say whatever you want. I support you, whatever you decide. The girl does not remember how her opiate-addicted boyfriend responded to this, but she knows it was clear if she had the baby, she would be alone. At the time, the girl was getting paid $1,000 a month for her part-time job stage managing off-off Broadway shows. She did not have enough money to have a kid. They scheduled the abortion for December 16th, and that's the date they did it. She decided to have the kind of abortion where you take two pills and the pills stimulate contractions, leading to a miscarriage. This way of having an abortion is extremely painful. The pain is akin to actually going into labor. But the girl knew that the alternate choice, surgery, would absolutely be the wrong thing. She didn't want to numb herself to what she had chosen to do. For three hours, she screamed while her boyfriend held her from behind. At one point, the girl's roommate, having heard all the noise, came upstairs to see if she could help. She held the girl. She told the girl to breathe and to stay present in her body. But then the pain came back and she was in hell all over again. Eventually, the abortion was over, the pain was gone, the blood had passed, and it was time for everybody to move on. Less than a week later, the girl's cousin had a wedding. At the wedding, nobody knew that the girl was in mourning, and certainly she couldn't tell anyone. Melanie June, may it be your turn soon. Soon a husband and soon a baby. So she danced and she smiled and she pretended to celebrate. Yeah, soon. Thank you. My turn soon. As the weeks passed, the girl realized that there was something wrong with her mind. The days when she'd been trying to decide whether or not she would keep the baby, those days were stuck in her mind. She kept rethinking the pros and cons and sometimes she would land on yes, yes, she could do this. She could have this baby. She could become a mother. And then she would wake from her stupor and remember that it was too late. The deed had already been done. The girl was not okay. She didn't know who to turn to. So she decided to call her mom. The truth is, all along, she had been thinking of her mom. She had almost thought of it as their abortion. She's my mom, the girl thought. And this is my first ever act of motherhood. The girl had a mom who was the very best at taking care of her. 
If the girl had a cold or a fever or the flu, her mom would wrap the girl in blankets. Her mom would make her freshly made watermelon juice and freshly squeezed orange juice, and she would make chicken soup and something else for dinner and bring her cups of tea and keep on swaddling her again in the blankets. The girl's mother was a woman with monumental capacity for nurturing. She imagined calling her mother, telling her mother this news that undoubtedly would disturb her, and nonetheless, her mother finding it within herself to say exactly what the girl needed to hear. Whatever the verbal equivalent was of swaddling her in blankets and making her fresh watermelon juice. Hello, Melanie Toy. Hi, Corbin Esperam. How are you? Hi, Mom. How are you? Are you okay? You sound sick, Maddie I'm not sick. Um, I'm calling because I have to tell you something that's hard to say. It's really hard to say. But I have to tell you. I wouldn't tell you if I didn't feel like I had to tell you. Mom, listen to me. If it's something I don't approve of, I A couple don't weeks want ago, know, okay? I found out I was pregnant and I had an abortion. It was with Ben. Uh, we did it together. Everything's fine. I'm I'm actually fine. I'm just I just like really had to tell you. Mom? Are you there? Mom? Mom, I'm sorry. I'm really, really sorry. I don't understand. It's not my fault, Mom. I never will understand. It's just you. something that happened. These things happen to people. Man, I said, I told your father, I said, the minute you moved into that house in Brooklyn, every night I prayed to God, I knew something like this was going to happen to you. Either you were going to get raped or this. I knew it. I knew it! After the call, the girl and her mother didn't talk for three months. And in the meantime, the girl was surprised to receive a text from her father asking to meet one day in Manhattan near his store. You look good, Baba. You look good. He told the girl that he was pro-choice, but that her mother wasn't. She has different views about this. He said he was more accepting of what had happened. But at this point, the most important thing the girl could do was to forget about it. Put it behind you. Put it in your past. Then the girl's father pulled out his wallet and said, I want you to take my credit Here, card. Take my credit card. I want you to buy yourself some new clothes. Anything you want, it doesn't matter how expensive. Don't worry about the price. I want you to. I make just want you to make nice. yourself look nice. I want you to. Pretend. I want you to pretend that none, of this, pretend that none of this ever happened. Baba John. The girl accepted her father's credit card. Move on, Baba John. Move on. She said goodbye to her father, and then she took the six train to Soho and found her way to a store she had only ever heard of, but never walked inside of before. She went up to the dress rack and pulled five, six, seven dresses. That day, she spent almost $1,000 on clothes. 
Then she went home to her empty bedroom and contemplated the rest of her life. Within a few months, the girl would reconcile with her mother, who, far from holding what had happened against her daughter, would instead choose to pretend it had never happened at all. Melanie Jun, you are such a good girl. Such a good girl. The girl would break up with her opiate-addicted boyfriend, and she would fall in love with someone new. So, you're recording this. If anything comes of this, we're gonna have a we're gonna have our first date on tape. And all the while, the girl would harbor in her heart the deep yearning to become a mother. I want I want to care for another human being. I want to witness that human being grow. I want to be there for that human being. I want to take care of it. I want to nurture it. I want to accept it for any weirdo shit that that kid might be ashamed of. I want to tell that kid that they have a mom who's like completely pro. Yes. Yes? Yes, on one condition. I can't do any more TTBU. No more of this on-again, off-again, on-again stuff. I need to know that you are going to be my partner. I need you to think about it and give me an answer. You have just heard episode one of Appearances, written, directed, and sound designed by Sharon Mashihi. The roles of Melanie and her family are performed by Sharon Mashihi. The role of Ponch is performed by Thatcher Keats. Our story consultant is Sunita Prasad. Our associate producer is Ariel Mejia. Graphic design by Homa Delvaroy, with social media support from Natalie Prest. Associate producer of pre-production is Mo Laborde. Our mix engineer is Harry Nazan. Our executive producer and editor is me, KP, Caitlin Prest. Special thanks in this episode go to Alvin Malaith, Sheeran Naiman, David Weinberg, Tobin Lowe, Valerie Dauphin, James Kim, Ido Fluke, Ali Pinel, Jen Ng, Katya Apakina, Lior Sternfeld, Kathleen Bahar, Josephine Decker, Richard Parks III, Nicole Kelly, Phoebe Unter, and Piruz Kalaye, and all Mashihis, far and wide. Thank you to New York State Council on the Arts, McDowell, the Ragdale Foundation, Union Docs, and IFP. This show is a production of the audio arts company, Mermaid Palace. If you want to see pictures of Sharon Mashihi, her creative process, motivational poetry, and overall weirdo world, follow at Mermaid Palace Art. If you want to donate to this project, because that is how we pay our artists, you can go to mermaidpalace.org slash appearances and pay for some magical art. Thank you to Audrey Mardovich and Julie Shapiro at Radiotopia for helping this show come into being. In the next episode, a person who has never even been married fantasizes incessantly about divorce. You refinanced my house so that Gypsy King could play Bombolea three times in a row? Are you kidding me? Appearances is a proud member of Radiotopia.